1: Well, you definitely need to stay patient if you're heading out on the roads this morning. It's already busy. I think a lot of people probably left early and it's already messy, complicated, of course, by the weather situation. Highway 1 in particular is a bit of a sore spot right now. Uh, so be careful heading over the Portman Bridge. Some areas didn't get plowed in time. This It was like a sudden snowfall. It's very heavy, wet, slushy, already turning to rain. In fact, some parts of the lower mainland already seeing stars in the moon. I got an email from Gail, in the lineup at the ferry terminal and said she can see clear sky up above. So it's very uh, different all over the lower mainland today. Be careful uh, if you're heading out on the roads this morning, we'll have your complete updates ahead for you. Right now, let's talk about real estate and the housing market. Like we know it's very hot right now and it has been, feels like throughout the pandemic, particularly since late last year. But a big question with that is, well, who is actually buying the homes what is driving this? Well, there's great new data out of the real estate giant Royal LePage this morning. And it shows that young people are really driving this trend. Many of them getting into the market during the pandemic, likely boosted by these much lower interest rates that we're seeing. So we thought, let's talk to Royal LePage realtor, Adil Danani, about what it is that they found. Adil, thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, let's talk about this. Who's buying houses right now?
2: So we released our millennial uh, report this morning, and uh, we uh, surveyed over 2,000 millennials between 25 to 35, and they have been an incredibly active group in the market over the past 12 months. Um, I think it's been attributed to a couple of things. Of course, uh, you noted in the intro, uh, low interest rates have really been an, uh, a catalyst of you know, creating more affordability. Uh, People are analyzing, you know, what does it cost to rent their current home? And now with, you know, rates that we've never seen in our lifetime at one and a half percent, what does that mean in terms of my monthly borrowing costs? And so I think that's been the catalyst. I think that combined with lower condo prices, um, as you know, last year, um, you know, at the height of the pandemic or the height of the shock of the pandemic, uh, the condos became less attractive. There was that discussion around the exodus out of, urban living, um, you know, as people, you know, flee to the suburbs um, for um, less densified living environments. Um, and so condo prices did take a hit last year between 5 and 7%. And then we also had that note about um, strata insurance premiums going up. So the shine was really out of this, the uh, condo market. Um, but now as first-time buyers come in, there's, they're getting in at lower prices with lower borrowing costs. So it's really an opportunity that we don't see or, you know, these types yeah. of stars don't align both at the same time very often.
1: Well, I thought one of the interesting statistics in this survey was also that here in our province in BC, 49% of the residents who are between the ages of 25 to 35 own their home, and quite a few of them bought it since mid-March of last year.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a staggering figure. And I think that just that tells the narrative about, what that cohort, that 25 to 35 cohorts perception is of real estate ownership, right? There's a very positive association with owning real estate in British Columbia and Vancouver. Um, A lot of folks in that age category, you know, have seen their parents or, uh, you know, grow their wealth or grow their financial base as, uh, as a result of owning real estate. Maybe they have colleagues or folks in their peer groups um, that have owned their own home, and that's really bi- allowed them to graduate up the property ladder. It's, it's by getting your foot in the door, and then as markets with time, um, as prices, you know, price gains materialize, it allows you to, to graduate to the next level of housing, right. going from that one-bedroom to two-bedroom kind- as you progress.
1: I was wondering though, Adil, how big is this window and is it narrowing? Because when you have such an active market and you see prices start to inch up at some point, does that mean that you're going to cool the market because of the rise in prices?
2: Yeah, such a great, such a great question. Um, I I can tell you uh, based on what we're seeing um, um, on the ground and, and working with clients, the condo market is now turning the other way. Um, prices are now starting to rise again Ah. Um, market stabilized probably in the last 30 days prices have stabilized in the last 30 days and now you know like we always say oxygen for the market is low interest rates and when you have more buyers than sellers you put pressure on prices and that's what we're starting to um, see on uh, in the market in the condo market so i don't think the prices are going to be at a point where they're going to be in you know, what we saw in 2016, 2017, where they were in runaway mode, because we had foreign buying, we had uh, a tremendous amount of speculation taking place in that market. We're not seeing that today.
1: So you're saying that this time around, it's like local buyers fueling the market, younger people moving into it, which allows, I guess, at the top end, other people who already own to also move around.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is a domestic market. And this is a, a principal residence market people are buying to live.
1: OK, so even the people who don't own a home between the ages of 25 and 35, how many of them want to buy and get into the market?
2: Um, so the, the percentage um, um, that want to buy over the next five years is 65 percent of those folks that don't own mm-hmm. want to buy within the next five years. So, again, it's part of that narrative of, of them wanting to get into the market and them believing that, you know, um, it's a good investment vehicle in a place where they see um, them putting their capital over the next five years.
1: Right. So it sounds like if, if real estate, if, if the inflation or, or, sorry, mortgage rates, that's what I'm trying to say, stay the same, then is that going to continue to fuel this? Like if that changes, do you think the market changes?
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, since I've been doing this, I've been, in the, I've been a realtor for 15 years. And, you know, they always said rates couldn't go lower, you know, even a few years ago. And just rates keep going lower um and at one and a half percent um we always you know rates at this at this at this level there's always that flip relationship or inverse relationship when rates go lower prices go higher and so i do think uh to me, if if rates did shift the other way which we're not anticipating at least for the next 24 months um that that would have a cooling effect on the market
1: all right adil thanks so much for your time
2: my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: That's Adil Danani of Royal LePage West Real Estate Services talking about the survey that Royal LePage has done to try to see what is fueling the housing market right now. And it is young people getting into the market. At The stat that really surprised me was here in B.C., 49% of residents between the ages of 25 to 35 own their home. And of all of those homeowners, 27% of them purchased a home just since mid-March of last year. So they've actually gotten into the market during the pandemic, which really helps to explain why we've seen so much activity in the real estate market, right? The question is, can it continue? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. We're going to talk about a problem that Canada has had the last few years of Canadian companies getting into trouble, particularly overseas, by offering bribes. Of course, you think of SNC Lavalin right away because that was a very high profile case. So one of the ways that we were supposed to combat that was to have an ombudsman ombudsperson appointed to make sure that Canadian companies aren't engaging in any human rights abuses out there in the world. Great. Sounded like a wonderful idea. Turns out though, the ombudsperson's office doesn't have the, the teeth that was promised by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in 2015. In fact, we learned earlier in the week, that the newly appointed ombudsperson Sherry Merhofer, won't have investigative powers. And advocates say the rule requires those kinds of powers to really be effective. So joining us for more on this is Karen Keenan, who's the director of Above Ground. That's a human rights advocacy group. Karen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So how does this work then? Like what, what kind of a change will it make if the ombudsperson doesn't have investigative powers? We don't think
3: it'll make any change. Unfortunately, we think the office will, will, will be unable to fulfill the intended mandate. The intended mandate, as you said, was to be able to review complaints from people outside of Canada who claim to have been affected by the operations of Canadian companies and to get to the bottom of those claims and find out whether they're credible, to sift through the facts and to make findings of fact and make them public so that all parties understand what's happening. And we don't believe the office will be able to do that without relevant information from companies, which we do not think they will voluntarily hand over to her office.
1: Right, because this has been a bit of a black eye for Canada, hasn't it?
3: Absolutely, there is, there is a systemic problem overseas with Canadian companies, particularly companies in the extractive sector who operate in the four corners of the world. Um, we, we are constantly receiving reports from communities uh, who are impacted by these operations who have grievances, many credible grievances. And we see also that there's been research that's been carried out revealing that these problems are not one-off, they're systemic. We've also heard over the years repeatedly from United Nations authorities, United Nations committees who have raised these issues over and over with the Canadian government and called on the government to make meaningful policy and legal reforms to address these grievances and these abuses.
1: So then what is the point of having the ombudsperson if it doesn't have these other powers?
3: Well, we don't think there is a point. Um, we've In Canada, we've had several offices, several federal government offices that have been created over the years, um, supposedly to address this problem, and they have only been given the power to do things like offer their good offices to the parties in the hope that the parties could come together and sort out their differences. Well, if you're an Indigenous community uh, in Latin America or Africa, um, coming to Canada and using the good offices of a Canadian government to uh, agency to chat with the the alleged perpetrator of human rights violations is not a meaningful um, avenue for for redress. Um, And so we've, we've found that that hasn't worked. Those offices were also charged with providing advice to companies, so trying to give them some orientation about how to steer clear of these kinds of problems, and that hasn't worked either. What we see happening in other countries is that they're actually taking this problem seriously and they're legislating reforms. They're creating meaningful mechanisms to sanction companies when they're involved in this kind of wrongdoing, creating a basis for liability for them to be held accountable in Canadian courts. We are providing advice to companies. Long- it's, it's, it's just a completely
1: inadequate uh, response. Long way for us to go. Uh, Karen, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much. It's Karen Keenan, the director of Above Ground. It's a human rights advocacy group not happy with this ombudsperson that has been set up by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government. It was promised, you know, some pretty big powers back in 2015. That didn't materialize this week when we learned what was really going to be going on with this ombudsperson's office. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. Let's talk about policing in Surrey. Quite a contentious issue but all signs point to that city moving ahead with the Surrey Police Force. Earlier this week, we spoke to the Surrey Police Chief, Norm Lipinski, about the whole process. And they are moving, it's all, all things moving forward, right? But then comes this survey. This survey from the National Police Federation that was presented at the Surrey Board of Trade yesterday. And it actually paints a different picture in terms of community support for this change in policing. So let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Brian Sauve from the National Police Federation. He's the president there. Brian, thank you for joining us.
4: Oh, thanks for having us, Simi. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Tell me about this survey that you did. So you asked people in Surrey what?
4: Uh, Actually, so it's not a survey that we did. It's a survey that we commissioned. And it's not just one survey. It's actually a series of four surveys that were done over the span of all of 2020 Uh, Each sample size was about 800 residents. Uh, We hired Polaris Strategic Insights to do it for us, to develop the sample uh, across demographic lines, across party lines, across jurisdictional uh, areas within Surrey. The margin of error across each survey is about anywhere from 3.5 to 3.7%. And the um, collated data or the aggregate data was presented at the Surrey Board of Trade that's is consistent across all four surveys um, that the community does not support the Surrey Police Service in a move to the Surrey Police Service, especially in a COVID economy recovery.
1: Well, first of all, that sounds very thorough, the way you described it there. Uh, So when you say doesn't support, what are some of the numbers? Like, what is the support level, would you say, for this move?
4: Well, it depends. (laughs) Um, The support level is waning. Um, It was... About thirty-six percent, I think, in uh, February two thousand twenty, and it's gone down now to about thirty-two to thirty-one percent. Um, so you know we're uh, not not supportive. Uh, the majority of the residents in Surrey um, actually, uh, I think, almost eighty percent of them support, and that's a consistent number that uh, retaining the RCMP. With some improvements, what that looks like, and then we went into questions about well, what would improve what are your priorities for a police service or, so we're essentially we're doing the consultation that the Surrey police service or the city should have done is what would you like your police service to look like and focus on uh, if you had to rebuild it, and what would you improve in the RCMP if you chose to retain them and one of them is guns crime gangs, um, um, safer business areas, all of those normal things that Canadians want to feel safe in their homes and their communities.
1: Okay. So that, those are some startling results there. And so one of the numbers that stuck out for me, Brian, was that only 15% really felt strongly about replacing the RCMP. Yep. That's very low.
4: It is low. And, and, you know, we've advertised these along the way in different media outlets as they come out. Um, uh, And, and the, the, the support for, um, the strong support for replacing the RCMP or going in that direction has always been low, period. What, so, about,
1: what about the concerns? Like, are is it costs? Is it the change, the transition? Like, what is high on the list for people and their concerns about this process?
4: I think the big concern is... The unknown. Um, and, and, and from and from day one, the National Police Federation, whether we're going back to 2018, 2019, uh, and, and the beginning of this initiative upon the election of the mayor, we're not anti-municipal police service. What we are anti is quagmires of secrecy and lack of transparency and lack of community engagement which leads to the apprehension of bias or the perception that the people are being misled and it results in where we are today, the possibility of a Surrey Police Service destabilizing policing in the entire Lower Mainland, not to mention the province of B.C., and putting everybody at risk because no proper feasibility study was done to determine where are you going to come up with these 800 cops, how's the J.I. going to train them, who's going to transfer over, what's their salary rate going to be. The policing sector is having a challenge recruiting people normally, and now you're assuming that within two years you can create the 7th or 8th largest police service in Canada. That makes people nervous.
1: Yeah, just the way you put it made me nervous. What is the willingness of other officers to join this police force?
4: Well, uh, we didn't do this survey. This one was done by the RCMP, but they did survey their own employees um, and their own members, their own cops in Surrey, and their results were 14% would consider applying to the Surrey Police Service. Yeah, that's it. And that was before, that's not even knowing the details, right? So they don't know what the pension impacts are going to be. They don't know what the new salary is going to be. You don't know if you can carry over rank. You don't know if you can carry over service. Uh, you don't know if you can go over as from a, a plainclothes position to a detective's position. Are you going to be walking a beat? Are you going to be working in a car? So we did further analysis on that. We hired an actuarial firm, West Coast Actuaries, to look at the RCMP pension plan and the BC Municipal Pension Plan Group 5, which is the police pension plan, And we looked at two areas, early service, five years, and mid-year service, 15 years of service, a 32-year-old and a uh, 42-year-old. And they came back and said, based on December 2020, it would cost the five-year member almost $80,000 to move over to the BC Municipal Pension Plan, and the 15-year member, about $109,000.
1: That's a lot of money. So yeah, that does not make yeah. it seem very, uh, liable to happen. Uh, and what about in terms of cost here, the percentage of police officers that Surrey has, right? When this plan was initially struck a couple of years ago, they had a set number. They haven't increased that number, but the population of Surrey has certainly increased during that time.
4: Oh yeah. And speaking to the, to, you know, the Surrey Board of Trade, uh, Surrey will be the largest city in D.C., whether it's this year, next year, eventually. They're growing 1,000 people per month. And the police service has not grown, actually, not only this year, but in the past three years. They've been asking for more resources to assist with, um, but they haven't grown. They haven't had the funding added. The consultation with the mayor and the officer in charge of uh, uh, of the RCMP is, I, I suspect, tenuous at best. Um, and And We add to that, and if you've seen the presentation last night, I like to advocate for how professional and dedicated our members are. They haven't had added resources. They haven't had an increase in funding. And they're still one of the best police services in Canada when you compare them to Halifax, Calgary, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, because the crime severity index is on a downward trend. It's one of the safest cities to live in in Canada over the last five years. So with lack of resources, lack of funding, lack of members, they're doing a fantastic job.
1: Well, it's a fascinating look at the numbers there. Brian, thanks for your time on that this morning.
4: Thank you, Sami. Have a great week.
1: You too. Brian Seve is with the president of the National Police Federation. They are part of this process in the discussion of the new Surrey Police Service. They presented their survey results at the Surrey Board of Trade yesterday, and you heard the results right there. They have a lot of concerns that overall the public in Surrey is not on board with this. Let me just tell you the most telling stat Out of the numbers, and this comes from the Stats Canada police personnel for 2019 that was presented to the Surrey Board of Trade yesterday, the number of police officers per 100,000 members of the population. Uh, The BC average is 183.2, so 183 officers for every 100,000 members of the population. In Vancouver, it's 196 police officers per 100,000. In Surrey... One hundred and forty. It is the lowest out of the major cities. Halifax is two hundred and eight. Toronto's one hundred and sixty-two. Winnipeg, Regina, Calgary, Edmonton, all higher. Surrey is much lower at one hundred and forty. Surrey residents want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com. All right, listen up if you are hoping to get out camping this season or at some point in this summer. The reservation system is set to open up in just a couple of weeks. So we're going to give you all the details that you need to get in early and make those plans. Joining us now is George Heyman, Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Good morning. Thank you for being here.
0: Good morning, Simi.
1: Okay, when does this portal open up?
0: The portal opens up on March 8th for almost all camping. Uh, the, for the Berg Lake Trail and Bower and Lesson New Circuit, we're opening it uh, March 1st, just because those are uh, very, very popular. They always book out, and we want to give people a nerdy chance.
1: Okay, and it's a, you're doing something different this year. Uh, you're saving it for BC residents. What is the policy?
0: Well, we're building on what we did last year, uh, and this comes from COVID. Uh, people have been cooped up. Uh, we, we're all under uh, unnecessary travel restrictions. We're, uh, we're in our household uh, uh, groups, and uh, I know that, uh, that one of the things that people really appreciated uh, last summer and, and also over the December and January time was the chance to get outside and get some fresh air and enjoy the beauty of nature. And uh, BC parks are they're paid for by british Columbians. we we welcome people in normal years but uh but this year we're saying for our reservable sites uh you have to be a resident of british columbia to book the site and we've put a, a screen uh, in front of the booking page that uh, requires people to uh, confirm that they're a bc resident and uh and then they give their address going forward you know, depending on travel um, travel advisories from different uh, provincial health officers um, that may uh, occur in the summer, we still have forty five percent of our sites are first come first serve, and if travel is happening at that point and and it's not being restricted. Uh, There'll still be opportunity, but we wanted the high-demand reservable sites to uh, be uh, an opportunity for British Columbians first.
1: Okay, so then just to confirm, you will have to type in an address to show that you live in B.C.?
0: You have to type in an address as part of your reservation. And then when you uh, when you arrive at the site, uh, we have park operators and park rangers. People actually, the person who made the reservation, uh, has to be in the party that's staying at the campsite.
1: Right, because there was a concern that this would be perhaps too much on the honour system.
0: Well, it is on the honour system, but it was on the honour system last year. And in <clears throat> the spot checks we did, I think... Uh, the instances where where people were from out of province were the ones that hit the news. But there was a, a very high degree of compliance. And we also know that there are people who live in British Columbia who happen to be driving uh, vehicles with plates from from elsewhere because they've just moved here or because they, they're normally resident here, but they've been working uh, there for a while. So I, I'd ask people not to jump to conclusions, our experience in spot checks was there was a high degree of compliance. And, and we have um, an even uh, a better screen this year because we've had a year to think about it.
1: So if somebody tries to book then without a BC address when they go to put in their booking, does that mean the booking gets rejected?
0: Uh, we don't have the capacity in the application uh, to do that, it doesn't exist. Uh, it would have been hugely expensive, and I'm not sure we had the capacity to to make a change that uh, would reject the booking based on address. We uh, that was the first place I went to. Uh, we made inquiries. Uh, we were not able to do that. But again, Simi, um, you know the honor system is not perfect, but I would say it largely works, and and I I would say the experience of British Columbians over the last year is uh, many of the measures that uh, we've been asked to take are are, uh, advice and and not regulation, and people are, by and large, following it because we all want to get through this together. We have neighbours who've who've lost their jobs or had their earnings interrupted. We know people who are sick. Uh, uh, the vast majority of British Columbians and Canadians are responsible, so we're, uh, we're ensuring and counting on that. Uh, our experience last year indicates that we can, and we're confident that British Columbians will have lots of opportunity to reserve uh, campgrounds in B.C. and get out. We are, of course, until the provincial health officers' uh, advice changes, encouraging people to book close to home.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this
0: morning. Thank you. Have a great day.
1: You too. That's George Heyman, Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy, talking about camping reservations. The system's going to open up in a couple of weeks. It's the honor system. They want people, it'll tell you right on there it's reserved for people who live in BC, but it doesn't actually have any method to stop people from outside of BC booking those same kind of camping spots. So I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this when the system does open and people rush to book something for this summer. And there's been a ton of effort made and money spent over the last year. And we're talking money flowing out of the federal and provincial governments, all in the hopes of keeping small businesses viable and in business. But despite all of that, Small businesses are still in trouble. There's some new data released by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business this morning that shows the amount of debt that small businesses have taken on is ballooning as a result of the pandemic. Joining us now is a CFIB Executive Vice President, Laura Jones. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. So how big of a problem is this?
5: It's a pretty scary problem for a lot of small businesses. So the problem, as you just said, has ballooned. We last did a study in July where we found there was $117 billion of debt in the small business sector. That now stands at $135 billion. Now, billion-dollar numbers are always a little big and hard to wrap your brain around, so let me bring that down. The average small business um, uh, who has debt is facing 170 thousand uh, dollars, and that's a lot of money um, for you know a small coffee shop or a small gym, um, a small dance studio to to take on.
1: And so, in what ways is that accumulating? Is that you know rent arrears? Is it salaries? Like where are they accumulating all of this?
5: So it's this very challenging combination of a lot of your expenses haven't gone away. So you mentioned rent. Uh, Rent is a big one. And early in the pandemic, there were many businesses who uh, really couldn't access much rent relief. Now there's a better rent relief program, but still some businesses don't have access to it. So that's a big fixed cost that accumulates. Um, And then, of course, we're hearing from a lot of businesses, too, that there's a lot of additional uh, costs with the um, protective equipment that they're um, using and so that can be part of the equation. And then sales are just much, much lower. So the sales that are coming through the door aren't covering um, the outlay and cost that you're, you're making in order to keep your business running.
1: Right. Do you think in the beginning, Laura, there was this idea that, listen, this is going to be a couple of months and then everything's going to rebound, but perhaps those problems are now accumulating?
5: I think so. I mean, I think back to the early uh, part of the pandemic, and I think, um, like many people, I was a little bit uh, overly optimistic and thinking, well, this might be, you know, certainly the signs that you saw in business windows were suggesting, you know, at least a reevaluation in two weeks. We're shut for two weeks was the, the kind of most common sign you saw and we'll be back and to our valued customers. We're keeping you safe, but we'll see you soon. Uh, and for many businesses, unfortunately, that that hasn't been the reality. And um, we're fortunate, actually, in British Columbia that things have been more open, have been kept more open. I think small businesses are very grateful to the provincial government uh, for that. Uh, compared to in Ontario and Toronto, there are some you know some hairdressers and and gyms and salons that are just they're not open. The bookstores they're not open. Christmas Eve, you could go to your local bookstore here in uh, Vancouver but that wasn't the case in toronto they missed out on a really important shopping season
1: yeah so what can be done about this do you think
5: Well, I think first of all, um, keeping things open is as open as we possibly can. Obviously, um, while maintaining, you know, the uh, vigilance around the health, uh, the health crisis that we're in, is the number one uh, priority. And right alongside of that is making sure that the programs that are in place have a good portion of debt forgiveness and are open to businesses. The much-needed programs for rent relief and wage subsidies are open to businesses. There's still some businesses that can't access those programs. And I think that needs to be a priority for government.
1: Yeah, is there a way then, do you think, time to start thinking about the recovery aspect of this? It seems like we're very much still in the middle of this.
5: Well, you know... I, I think that the economic, fr- the longer this goes on, the more fragility we're introducing into the economy. Small businesses, half, small and mid-sized businesses together, half of, of GDP. And, um, you know, here's a sobering number. 70% of them say that government support right now is critical to the survival of their business. And, you know, that, that, starts to get less and less sustainable. We're almost a year into this. So I think we need to be um, getting more creative about how we can encourage more sales um, while, um, you know, while maintaining, again, vigilance around the health piece of it.
1: Laura, do you think perhaps we haven't fully reached crunch time with some of these businesses yet? Like some of them are not going to make it.
5: I think that's true. We're projecting um, that overall you'll see, um, in addition to the ones that have already um, uh, packed it up, that you'll see one in six uh, uh, additional businesses. Uh, That's our most recent prediction on that, um, won't uh, come through it. And I think that the crunch time is when the subsidies Start to reduce. As I said, seventy percent are saying that's critical to their survival right now. So when, as soon as government starts to reduce those subsidies, and we don't know what's going to happen with the subsidies, uh, because um, there's been no announcement um, in terms of, uh, you know, we know there'll be some some wage and rent support through June, but what happens after June? And I don't think that most a lot of businesses are not going to be in great shape by then.
1: Do we know if there's is there a particular sector that is a harder hit than others?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Right from the beginning, we've seen um, hospitality. So think of your restaurants, your caterers, um, hotels. Those businesses have been very hard hit and they've taken on uh, more debt, and, and a higher proportion is taken on debt. So on average, 7 out of 10 businesses have taken on debt. In that sector, you're looking at 9 out of 10. Um, and arts and recreation, so think your gyms, your movie theaters, um, your dance studios, right. your climbing walls, those businesses are also um, in, uh, in in much bigger trouble. Their average debt is 242000 compared to that uh, one seventy in uh, across all sectors. So those are the two sectors that we're really, really worried about.
1: Scary times out there. Uh, Laura, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Laura Jones. She's the Executive Vice President for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Talking about the amount of debt that so many small businesses are being, you know, having to deal with during this pandemic that just seems to be increasing as time goes on. And she said, we have not yet hit crunch time when some of those businesses decide that they just can't continue on anymore. If you want to weigh in and tell your business story, you can email me, me at cknw.com. Right now, though, so the plan to distribute vaccines is, well, it's different. No matter where you are, it's a different idea of who should go first. Uh, even in the United States, right, it's all over the place. Should it be over people over the age of 65, people over 75, people over the age of 80? Where do you even start? Well, here in BC, we know the government has decided that an age-based logistics plan is the way to go, meaning we're going to start with people over the age of 80 and then just work our way down the demographic list. But is that the best way to go? Well, new research out of Simon Fraser University is raising the question about that, about whether or not the rollout plan should prioritize frontline workers instead of just the older population. So we thought let's find out more about this research. Joining us for more on it is the lead researcher of the study, Nicola Mulberry, who's a PhD candidate in mathematics. Nicola, thank you for joining us. Hi,
6: good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: So tell me, what did you take a look at to determine this?
6: Right, so uh, we developed a dy- dynamic transition model to investigate different rollout strategies, as you mentioned. Um, we used detailed contact structure among the age groups from BC specifically. We looked at the proportion of essential workers um, among BC from the COVID Speak survey. Um, And we also looked at how the different vaccines are actually being effective because we knew from the phase three trials that they were effective at preventing symptomatic disease, but we didn't know how they were doing that. We didn't know if they were actually preventing infection in the first place and therefore had an effect on transmission. Recent studies have shed a light on this and they're indicating that, at least for Moderna and Pfizer, that they are actually quite effective at preventing transmission. And so we wanted to... Reevaluate BC's proposed Phase 3 strategy, which is where we um, started our mass vaccinations, um, going down the age groups, as you mentioned, starting with the 7-year-olds and going down to the 20-year-olds. And we wanted to see if, by prioritizing essential workers, we could achieve better outcomes. And that's actually what we saw across the board for all the outcomes that we looked at, including overall fatalities.
1: Okay, so when you say better outcomes, what was the measure for that?
6: Yep. So we looked at total expected cases and uh, hospitalizations, deaths, um, and, and a few other outcomes. It really does story can be told just with deaths. So, um, right. So, right, so, so
1: what did you categorize as frontline workers?
6: Right. So, so we... Um, by essential workers, we really mean uh, working-age adults who cannot uh, socially distance, who cannot reduce their contacts at work. So they have to have a high number of contacts as a result of their work. Uh, to find the actual numbers for that, we used the COVID Speak survey, and we found that about 13% of BC um, is classified as essential workers.
1: So you're saying that if we used those essential workers and vaccinated them ahead of which age group would it be the most effective?
6: Right. So we're not proposing any changes to phases one or two. Those are the phases that we're currently in, which prioritize um, uh, seniors 80 plus and seniors in long-term care. So we're starting really with that mass vaccination phase starting in, in about March. Um, saw, and, and okay. our, yeah. So our results are not too sensitive to when you prioritize essential workers, but they do highlight that um, if at any point you do, target essential workers, that you achieve much better outcomes, and the earlier the better.
1: So how would you determine which essential workers at that point? It, did you look at that at all?
6: So we didn't, um, we didn't have a, a super detailed study. We didn't look specifically at teachers or grocery store workers. We kind of grouped everyone together um, with the interpretation that these are, uh, these are people who have high numbers of contact in the workplace. And then that therefore uh, spreads to the um, entire community.
1: Okay, interesting though. So you're saying people, the teachers would definitely be in that group, right? But you've got yep. manufacturers, delivery people. Like, so there's a lot of people who'd kind of fall into that category. Exactly. And you're saying that we would get better outcomes in terms of fewer cases and fewer deaths if we included them at the top of the phase three plan?
6: Exactly. And it, and it all relies on the fact that the vaccines prevent transmission. And so people who have high contacts, if we instead prevent them, then we're also preventing all of their contacts.
1: Okay, but what do we do with this information then, Nicola? Because that sounds very compelling, what you've described there. Um, do you submit this to the government? Do you have a meeting with the ministry? How does this work?
6: Right. I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons why we're we're publicizing this work, because we do think that the government should be aware of it and should take it under consideration, especially if uh, many more vaccines become available in March, which I think they are expecting, um, that we believe that this should be taken into consideration and that essential workers should be prioritized.
1: Oh, you make a good case. Nicola, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nicola Mulberry is a lead researcher and PhD candidate in mathematics at Simon Fraser University. And their team did a look at um, vaccine distribution and logistics. And their research showed that if at the next phase of the plan, so phase three, which we are about to enter into here in BC, if you prioritized frontline workers instead of just going by age, that you would have better outcomes. And so their definition of frontline workers is anybody who works in a line of work that is working right now, but it cannot social distance for whatever reason. So you're talking, yeah, in the education system, teachers, warehouse workers, um, yeah, healthcare workers, like anybody like that who you cannot avoid coming into contact, grocery store workers, you name it that those people should also be put at the top of the list. What do you think about that? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. I don't know if the government is going to change their mind on this, but that is certainly a compelling reason why they should take another look at it perhaps.